Tonight we begin our study in the book of Philippians, which is not a very long book in the New Testament, but I think you have to say it is certainly one of the most unique and powerful. What makes the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippian church so particularly powerful is that he seems to have had a very special relationship with the Philippian church. He had a relationship with them of warm friendship and fellowship. It's almost the happiest and the most friendly letter that Paul wrote. Matter of fact, this is something that I just discovered recently in my study for the letter. The word sin is not mentioned once in the letter to the Philippians. And the idea of the flesh is only brought up in a particular context. It's a letter filled with joy, filled with the fellowship and the friendship of the gospel. And it's for a very important reason that it's that way, because Paul had a very special relationship with the Philippian church. So we'll talk about this more as we go along. I don't like to spend too much time by way of introduction. Let's just get into the first couple verses of chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wrote this letter to his close friends, the Christians in Philippi, from his Roman house arrest that was described at the end of the book of Acts. Are you familiar that at the end of the book of Acts, we leave Paul being under house arrest? He's imprisoned, though probably not in a jail cell, so to speak, but he's under what we would call house arrest. And he is regularly, especially through the night, chained to a Roman soldier and under the constant guard and supervision of Roman soldiers. He was there perhaps around the year 60, maybe 61 AD, waiting for his court appearance before Caesar, who at this time was in particular Caesar Nero. Paul was there because he had demanded to have his trial before Caesar, appealing to the highest court of the Roman Empire, and that was his right as a Roman citizen. So that's why Paul was writing the letter from his circumstances in prison, but he wrote the letter, as we read there, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. The the, the church in Philippi was founded by Paul some 11 years before this letter. So it wasn't a terribly old church, 11 years old. He founded it on his second missionary journey, as it's described in Acts chapter 16. Interestingly, the church in Philippi was the very first church established on the continent of Europe. This was the first European congregation that Paul wrote to. And he wrote the letter, as it says there in verse 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, yet he makes a further uh, identification there in that verse where he says, with the bishops and deacons. So so think about those three categories. First, to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus. This means that the Christians who are in Philippi, all Christians are saints, but only in Christ Jesus. Isn't it very strange how this idea came into the church? And I'm afraid I can't tell you exactly when it came in. If we wanted to have a history lesson tonight, I suppose I could tell you approximately when it came into the church. But this idea that came into the church that some believers are saints and some are not. Isn't that a strange idea biblically? The New Testament knows nothing of this idea. 
Isn't that interesting that Paul wrote to all the saints in Christ Jesus? The idea is of those who are holy ones, God's separated ones, his people whom he has called to himself. So all the Christians in Philippi, because they were Christians, were saints. But that's not all he wrote to. We also saw in these verses that he wrote to the bishops. Now, you may think of a bishop today as someone who wears a particular robe and has a particular hat and carries a particular staff or someone who has some sort of note of authority or a high office in a church. This word for bishop comes from the ancient Greek word that simply means overseer. That is what it means literally, episkopos, overseer. And it generally simply means people who have leadership responsibilities. It was used to describe general leadership long before it was ever used to describe a specific office that might be recognized by some Christian traditions. And so he isn't referring to people who wear funny hats or special robes when he says bishops in Philippi. He's referring to leaders, probably in a very general sense, in the church, but not only leaders, but if you notice the second designation there, he says, with the bishops and deacons. Deacons in the early church were those who had recognized positions of service. Now, of course, every Christian is to be a servant, right? Every Christian is to look for a way to serve God and to serve his people. Yet, in the administration of God's work, it is useful and helpful to have certain people who are designated to be these servants or recognized as these servants just in the efficient administration of God's work. And so basically, he's saying, I'm writing to the entire congregation, but then also who have some position of ministry or authority in the church. And then he writes to them saying, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This was Paul's familiar greeting of grace and peace that he gives, which, by the way, is just a wonderful thing to go on. If you want to get a little bit deeper with that, we won't do it tonight, but just to mention this. Grace was a greeting that was common or that came forth from the Jewish world. Excuse me, the the Hebrew, pardon me, let me back up. It came from the Greek world of his day. That was a common way that Greeks would greet one another. Peace, or in Hebrew, shalom, was the way that Hebrews or Jewish people would greet one another. And so Paul brings together these two different strains of the Christian church at that time. And by the way, his own background, right? Didn't Paul have a, have a growing up in both the Greek world and in the Jewish world? And so it's wonderful and fitting that he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, after this very customary beginning that we find in the first two verses, now Paul will begin to speak to them, starting at verse 3. And it's just wonderful how he starts off the letter. You know, some of Paul's letters don't start off this nice. You think of Galatians, where right away he goes, I marvel that you've so soon departed from the faith that I delivered to you. There's some of the other letters where Paul is just, what's going on? I hear there's divisions, as he said to the Corinthians. But look how beautiful the friendship is that he has with the Philippians. He says here in verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you with all joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful how Paul starts off and just says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. 
If I could put this in other words that maybe are a little easier for you to put a handle on in your own thinking. Whenever Paul remembered the Philippians and all that they had done for him, he was thankful. He was naturally grateful to the Philippians, but more so he was grateful to God who had worked such kindness through the Philippians. And he says, I make requests for you all. I pray for you and I do it with joy. Paul felt that the one way that he could repay the Philippians for all they did for him was to pray for them. And what did the Philippians do for Paul? Well, I'll tell you one very tangible thing that the Philippians did. The Philippians supported Paul financially, materially. The Philippians were extremely giving towards Paul, both when he was with them, read Acts chapter 16 and you'll find that, but also when he was apart from them. Several times in the letters, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul mentions the giving of the churches of Macedonia, and by that he means the Philippian congregation, among perhaps some of the other churches of the region. They were very generous in the practical, physical, material support of Paul and his ministry. And Paul was so grateful for that, he said, I know one way I could repay them, I can pray for you. And he did this job, as it says right there in verse 3, he did it with all joy. One might simply say that when Paul prayed for the Philippians, he got happy. Isn't that a great way to think of it? Are there people like that in your life? I hope there are. I hope there's people like that in your life. They're just so dear, so wonderful to you, that when you pray for them, just a smile comes on your face. You can't think of them or pray for them without doing it with joy. It makes you happy to pray for them and pray for God's blessing and goodness and kindness to be upon them. By the way, let's notice this. This right here, this statement in verse 4, always in every prayer of mine making request for you with all joy. This is the first statement reflecting on Paul's feeling or attitude. You know, he's thankful in verse 3, and then he's filled with joy in verse 4. We, we get a view of his attitude, of his feeling here, of his frame of mind, thankful and filled with joy. And you say, wow, Paul, that's great, especially when you realize he's writing this from imprisonment. Not just imprisonment. He's writing it from imprisonment and possibly soon execution. You see, Paul was confined under house arrest and chained to a Roman soldier for much of the day and probably all of the night. But he knew that there would come a day when somebody would come up to him, unlock him from his chains and say, it's time for you to appear before Caesar. And Paul would be dragged before Caesar. He'd be put in a court where it would be a very intimidating situation around him with all these fancy people. And he'd stand before that debauched sinner, Caesar Nero, and he'd have to plead his case before Caesar. And he he knew very well that Caesar would stand in front of him and have to render a verdict, and Caesar could either give thumbs up or thumbs down, and if he gave thumbs down, Paul would be immediately executed. Paul knew that this was on the horizon and could happen at any moment. Nevertheless, what's his frame of mind? Man, I'm so thankful. I'm so filled with joy. I like what G. Campbell Morgan said about this. He said, It is a glorious revelation of how life and fellowship with Christ triumphs over all adverse circumstances. The triumph, moreover, is not that of stoical indifference. It's rather the recognition of the fact 
that all apparently adverse conditions are made allies of the soul and ministers of victory under the dominion of the Lord. Man, that's great. This is Paul's singing letter. Now, if you go back to Acts chapter 16, and I don't want you to turn there, just think back there mentally. When Paul was in Philippi, there there happened something very dramatic when Paul was in Philippi. Do you remember that? He and Silas were arrested and put into prison, and they were put in the stocks. And the, uh, the specific wording there in the ancient Greek language seems to describe some almost form of torture that they were in, that they were being stretched out, that they were being put in some very uncomfortable or torturous position. They're in the stocks, and what were they doing around midnight? They were singing. And in response to that, or I shouldn't say in response to that, but just because of his great work and in concert with that, so to speak, God sent an earthquake and freed them from their bonds. And it was a glorious deliverance that they experienced there in the city of Philippi. But I want you to see here, he's in prison now in Rome and he's still singing. Wouldn't you call this Paul's singing letter? He just sings in this letter. He's filled with joy. He's filled with lofty and high thoughts and just this beautiful relationship with the Philippian church. So going on here now, uh, verse uh, 4, Always in every prayer of mine, making request for you with all joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. This was one reason why Paul was thankful for the Philippians. The idea is that the Philippians partnered with Paul in spreading the gospel through their friendship and financial support. And they did it from the first day until now. Now, the, the partnership is indicated by that great ancient Greek word, fellowship. It means koinonia, but you know what it really means? It means sharing. You see, when lives are shared, that's fellowship, koinonia, right? Uh, When communion is shared, the Bible uses koinonia to describe, uh, you know, the Lord's Supper being shared together. That's sharing the Lord's Supper together. That's called koinonia. Did you know that the Bible calls it that when money is shared in the New Testament, that's koinonia. Koinonia, fellowship, is sharing. And Paul said, you shared in the work of the gospel, and I love what he says there, from the first day until now. You know what that means? It means that the Philippians didn't stand back and wait to see how Paul would do before they would fellowship with them in the gospel. Don't we have a tendency to do that? Well, I'm going to stand back. If this guy's a winner, then I'll support him. Then I'll fellowship with him. Then I'll partner with him in his work. But you know, he might turn out to be a loser. He might turn out to be a real dog in this ministry. So I'm going to wait until he proves himself. Paul says, that's not how the Philippians were with me. It was from the first day until now. Now, because of this, because of this great um, fellowship and participation in the gospel and all that it showed about the Philippians, look at what he says here in verse 6. It follows on very logically. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. You see, Paul looked back on the joy and the solid foundation that was among the Philippian believers. He looked back on their partnership in his ministry and in his spreading of the gospel. And he said, you know what that shows me? It shows me that God has done a good work in you. And he was confident that the same God who had begun a good work in the Philippians was going to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. When Paul thought of the beginning of God's work among the Philippians, it was natural that he would also think of the day when it was complete. He was thinking back 
and he was thinking forward to the completion of it. And Paul also here expressed his confidence in God's ability to complete that work. Now I want you to think about what he says here in verse 6. He calls it a good work that God began in the Philippians. And believe me, it was indeed a good work. I love what Spurgeon says about this. He says, the work of grace has its root in the divine goodness of the Father. It's planted in the self-denying goodness of the Son, and it is daily watered by the goodness of the Holy Spirit. It springs from good, and it leads to good, and is so altogether good. When God does a work in his people, he does it good. So it's a good work that he's done, but then because that good work was begun, Paul was confident of its completion. You know, when you think about it, God is not one of those workers who begins a work but doesn't finish it. I mean, you've probably known people like that. Maybe you're a person like that. Maybe your garage or house or bedroom is filled with half-finished works. You know, that model of the airplane that you began but never finished. That, that you know, paint-by-numbers thing or craft that you started but never finished. Or, or that paper or that book that you started but you never finished. That's characteristic of man. We start things, but we do not finish them. Not so with God. When God begins a work, he finishes it. And that work in the believer will be completed. And I like how he says it here. It will be completed on the day of Jesus Christ. You know, when you think about that for a moment, when he describes that, he doesn't necessarily say the day of your death. He says the day of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's bringing up the idea of the second coming of Jesus and the resurrection from the dead and the completion of all things. Now listen, when a person dies, you can say that their soul is perfected. But yet, you can't say that they're fully complete until their body is resurrected. And listen, I'm here to tell you that, that there's some uh, maybe confusion, some, some gray area that we don't exactly know the order and the timing and how it all happens when the soul goes to heaven and when the resurrection happens and that. But I'm here to tell you that your salvation is not absolutely complete until you stand before God, not only in a perfected soul, but also in a resurrection body. That is the completion of our salvation. And that is the day that Paul says is the day of the finished work that God has begun. So this great section in verses 3 through 6 where Paul tells how affectionate he is for them and the great confidence he has for them uh, in the continuing work that God's doing among the Philippians, he continues it right on here now into verses 7 and 8 where he says, Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, Inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul said, it's right for me to think of you all this way. His thankfulness, his joy, his desire to pray for the Philippians, it was all right because they stood beside him in his trials for the gospel, and they, I love how it puts it here, they received the same grace he did. Did you notice there? He says, partakers with me of grace. Isn't that a great picture there at the end of verse 7? 
you all are partakers with me in grace. Therefore, Paul had them, as he says in verse 8, in my heart. God is with me, excuse me, God is my witness, how greatly I long for you with all the affection of Jesus Christ. I love that. It shows the real, um, well, you could say, without hesitation, the heart of Paul. Paul was a man of staggering intellect. You, you read his letters, you read his argumentation, you read how he tears apart a problem, for example, in the book of, uh, of uh, Romans. Or you look how he soars up to the heavenlies in the book of Ephesians. You look at Paul and, and you have to see, here's a man of amazing intellect, but at the same time, here's a man who had a tremendous heart. He wasn't just all head, he was a man of great heart, and he could even call God as his witness regarding the deep affection that he had for the Philippians. God knows, he says, how much I love you and the depth of my affection for you. Now, if you really love somebody, if you really care about them, what's one of the greatest things you can do for them? I won't say the only thing, but certainly one of the greatest things you can do for them, you can pray for them. And so now Paul's going to describe how he prays for the Philippians, beginning now at verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in all knowledge and all discernment, and that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with all the fruits of righteousness, which are by Christ Jesus, to the glory and praise of God. I got to say, these few verses, 9, 10, and 11, I regard them as very, very deep. Notice how Paul prayed for them. First of all, he prayed that their love would abound more and more. Now, as I've mentioned to you before, you know the relationship that Paul had with the Philippian Christians, right? Warm, loving. Was it anything like the relationship he had with the Corinthian Christians? No. With the Corinthian Christians, man, he was butting heads with them. The Corinthian Christians were rejecting Paul. They didn't like him. They didn't think he was spiritual enough. They were stabbing him in the back. They were dividing against him. They, they, they didn't honor him as a father among them. The, the, the relationship that Paul had with the Corinthians was very dysfunctional. But the relationship he had with the Philippians was different. It was war. It was affectionate. It was founded on this mutual love and you would think that Paul would say to the Corinthians, man, I want you guys to love more and more. That would make sense to us. But he says it to the Philippians also, this I pray that your love may abound still more and more. The Philippians had a lot of love and they showed it to Paul. Yet Paul didn't hesitate to pray that their love would abound still more and more. Listen, it doesn't matter how much love for other people you have. You can have more. You should have more. You should pray for more. Nobody has too much love. You might have the wrong kind of love. You might have some kind of sick, you know, psychologically weird love. But you can't have too much agape love for someone else or for other people or for a congregation. And so he says, I pray that this love would abound in you more and more and more. It's like a river. You know, where, where I come from in Southern California, they have these riverbeds. And usually those riverbeds are totally dry. 
There's nothing down there at all. And then sometimes when there's been some rain, there'll be a little stream going through the riverbed. And you go, wow, that's a stream. You know, that, that, that's really something. And then, you know, you come over here and just a few blocks away, there's the Zieg River. And the Zieg River, you look at that. That's a nice river. Look at it. It's, it's nice and wide. And it's got a lot of water in it and it's flowing. Wow, what a great river. What does that river compare to like the, the, the mighty Mississippi, the mighty Rhine? The, the mighty Amazon, nothing. And so love is a very comparative thing, right? Maybe you're feeling great because you used to have love like an like a old California barranca, you know, just a little, uh, a little stream flowing through. And now you're like the Zieg. Look, let me go show you the Rhine. Let me go show you the Mine River, right? God has more and more to do in our lives in love. But notice how he puts it here. Man, Paul was brilliant when he explained this. Again, verse 9. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment. You see, Paul wanted the Philippians to abound in love, but not in what we might call blind love. It, It was love that had knowledge and discernment. It was love, as he says right here, that would approve the things that are excellent in verse 10. You see, Paul knew the danger of an undiscerning love. Matter of fact, and I don't mean to criticize the Corinthian church. Sometimes I I wonder when I get to heaven, some guy from the Corinthian church is going to come up to me and punch me out because all the ways that, you know, look, it was a mixed bag in Corinth, right? But certainly there were some problems there for sure. And in the Corinthian church, they had a problem. They loved too much. But it wasn't real love. It was undiscerning love. It was unknowledgeable love. And they had a man in their midst who was in open adultery with his own stepmother. It was an incestuous relationship, and it was known to all the church, and the Corinthians were patting themselves on the back, saying, aren't we loving towards this man? Oh, we just accept him in. Here we are. Oh, we're the loving people. Aren't we loving? And Paul said, your love has no knowledge. It has no discernment. You see, blind love, well, it isn't love at all. And that's why Paul prayed a very wise and a very important prayer there in verse 9, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent and that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ Jesus. And I love that combination that he puts together there. It's like a one-two punch, sincere and without offense. I I like the contrast. I mean, I'll take sincere for speaking of inner righteousness. You, you, you have a righteousness on the inside, right? It's a righteousness nobody can see, but it's your own relationship with God, the integrity of your own heart, you, you know, your own attitude. My, nobody can see that. You're, you're, you don't have a screen above your head showing the thoughts and the sincerity or the lack of sincerity of your heart. So Paul's talking about the inner righteousness in the sincerity of heart, but then he goes on to talk about and without offense. That speaks of the outer righteousness that everybody can see. You see, Paul wanted their inner righteousness and their outer righteousness to become increasingly evident in their life until the day of Christ Jesus. That's what he says. Look at it again in verse 10. That you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. I want you to think about that. The inner righteousness and the outer righteousness, sincere and without offense. Listen, being sincere 
is important, but it's not enough. There were notorious sinners in the days of Jesus, such as tax collectors, and they were sincere, but they needed to repent. As well, I would say that being without offense before others is important, but it's not a love. It's not enough. The, the, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they were without offense in the opinion of many people. But yet God had to rebuke them because even though their outward appearance was fine, they had no inner righteousness before God. We want God to make us both sincere and without offense, and more so up until the day of Christ Jesus. Even to the point where it says in verse 11, being filled with the fruits of righteousness. It's fruit. It's God's work in us, bearing great fruit. And his bearing fruit is always the result of abiding in Jesus, just as we see in John 15 and other passages. As we abide in him, we get the life and the nutrients we need to naturally bear fruit to the glory and to the praise of God. Now, Paul, after that beautiful introduction in the first 11 verses, if you want to say now in verse 12, he gets on with explaining the point. He didn't just write the letter to sort of have a little love fest with the Philippians. He wrote the letter to the Philippians to explain some things that they were confused about. Now, again, to understand this confusion, you have to understand Paul's present circumstance and his previous circumstance. We already talked about this, how in Acts chapter 16, Paul was in Philippi, and maybe the whole centerpiece of his Philippian visit was his Philippian imprisonment, and then how God miraculously freed him from the Philippian jail, and the Philippian jailer, you know, what must I do to be saved, and the great work of God that happened there in Philippi, and all the amazing miracles surrounding Paul's jailbreak from the Philippian prison. That was the prior circumstance. What's Paul's present circumstance as he writes this letter? He's writing it from his Roman imprisonment, facing not only the chains around his hands and his feet, but he's also facing possible death, and a death that could come upon him very quickly. Now, keeping that in mind, let's look now starting at verse 12. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul wanted them to know that the things which have happened to me, what does he mean by that? Can you read prison, prison, prison? The things which have happened to me, the reason I'm in prison, have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Paul was here answering a concern of the Philippians. He wanted them to know that the blessing and power of God was still with him, even though he was in prison. He wasn't out of the will of God and that the work of God was still continuing. Now, again, I want you to put yourself back in the toga or back in the sandals of someone in the church of Philippi and think how they would think at this. When Paul was with us, he was singing praises to God in prison and God sent a miraculous earthquake and freedom from prison. Now Paul's in jail in Rome. And you know what? He's not freed. What's wrong with Paul? Has he lost some of his faith? Is he no longer singing in prison? 
Is there something wrong with Paul now that he's stuck in prison instead of the way that he was miraculously freed when he was with us? And Paul says, no, 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 no. I want you to know that my present circumstances have actually turned out good for the furtherance of the gospel. And I can tell you one way for certain that it turned out for the furtherance of the, of the gospel. How about Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon? Paul wrote those during this Roman imprisonment. How many letters did he write during this Philippian imprisonment? None. He wasn't even there for very long. So God had a purpose for him there. It's important to see that God didn't waste Paul's time during the Roman imprisonment. God never wastes our time. Now, we might waste it by not sensing God's purpose for our lives at the moment or asking, acting like God you know, has gone on vacation or something. But I'll tell you, God never wastes your time. And God was not wasting Paul's time. Instead, his present circumstance was turning out, as he says there in verse 12, that it happened for the furtherance of the gospel. You know what I like about that? Paul doesn't even mention if he was being advanced. Right? Hey, I'm being advanced. I'm being promoted. I'm being furthered. No, he doesn't even mention that. He's saying the gospel is being furthered. You know what? He didn't care about being advanced, and he assumed that the Philippians didn't care either. Their common passion was the furtherance of the gospel, and that's what they cared about. And how was it advanced? Well, look at it there in verse 13. It has become evident in the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. You see, the circumstances around Paul's imprisonment and his manner, the way he conducted himself in the midst of it, made it clear to everybody that he wasn't just another prisoner but rather he was an emissary or an ambassador of Jesus Christ. This witness led to the conversion of many people, even some of the palace guard. And you know what's great about that? Paul could minister, Paul could be effective for the gospel in less than ideal circumstances. Isn't it funny that oftentimes we think that, you know, well, I, I can only really do successful ministry if I have all the circumstances going my way, you know, um, well, you know, uh, they, they, they can't hear me, or, or I have a cold, or it's too cold, or it's too hot, or, or it's too loud, or it's too quiet, or there's too many people, or there's too few people. You know, there's always a reason we can come up with why we're not effective in doing the Lord's work. And, and Paul just says, you know what, it's evident, and it's being effective, and you know, it just doesn't matter what the circumstances are. Matter of fact, Paul goes on to explain how it says there in verse 14 that most of the brethren had become confident by his chains. Paul's imprisonment gave the Christians around him, those who were not imprisoned, greater confidence and boldness. People would go and visit Paul because they could visit him when he was under house arrest. And they would see how bold he was, even though he was chained up for the gospel. They would see how joyful he was and they would get convicted. It, this has happened to me on many occasions. I'll never forget the time when, you know, we get the phone call and you hear that, that, that somebody in your congregation had just gotten in a terrible traffic accident. Matter of fact, we'd actually driven by this, this car accident, a, a terrible head-on collision. And we said, wow, you know, feel bad for whoever was in that accident. We even prayed for that unnamed person who was in the accident. And we found out just within an hour or so that it was somebody from our congregation in that accident. And you go and visit that poor woman there in the hospital and you've probably heard this story before they end up encouraging you more than you encourage them well it was that way with Paul repeatedly during his Roman imprisonment oh Paul's in chains 
Let's go visit Paul. He must be really down. You know, try to put on a brave face for Paul. We don't want to bring him down or anything. Try, try to, the, and people would go and visit him, and they'd see, but we'll praise the Lord, brother. I'm so glad you're here. You know, and then Paul's leading a discipleship group with these Roman soldiers and these people from the palace of, 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 of uh, Nero and all the rest of it, and they would be encouraged, and they would become confident. They saw that Paul could have joy in the midst of such a trial. They saw that God would take care of Paul in such circumstances. God's taking care of Paul and he's in chains. And, and somehow I doubt that God will take care of me and I'm free. How crazy is that, they would think. And they'd become confident. And then they would say, God is using Paul even though he's still imprisoned. And they'd say, what excuse do I have for not being used of God? So you see how God was using it. Now get the bigger point here. Paul wants to assure the Philippians that God is still using him because they might have their doubts about him. Now, verse 15. Oh, this is, this is amazing. Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, hoping to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. This is an amazing passage. Look at how it begins. Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife. Paul knew that some people were out there preaching the gospel because they had a competitive heart. And they wanted to surpass Paul in the ministry. They wanted to promote their own name and their own place among Paul. Or excuse me, above Paul. You could almost see how this would work. You know, if you hang around the Philippians, you see, man, the Philippians keep talking about this Paul guy and how much they love him. You know, I, and the, the inner unspoken thing. No, nobody's so carnal to actually speak these words, but we think them. I, I wish that they would love me that way. And they would enter in this, this subtle, this, this almost secret competition of hearts. And Paul knew that there were people out there preaching Christ from envy and strife. And Paul knew something about those people. Paul knew that those people were glad that he was imprisoned. They felt, now we have a competitive edge over Paul in what they considered to be the contest of preaching the gospel. They were motivated, at least in part, by a competitive spirit, which might I say is all too common among preachers. I don't know what it is. Pastors, ministers, preachers, they often have a competitive spirit. Can I stand in front of you tonight and confess that before you? I'm just a competitive person. I'm playing table tennis with somebody. I want to win. You know, I'm playing foosball with somebody. I want to win. I don't like losing. And you know what? I... I, I have to resist it in ministry. I have to resist this desire of competition and that. It's something that I have to be aware of in myself and just try to beat down and keep down under the flesh. And I don't know what it is about the ministry. I don't know if it's of God or I don't know if it's of the devil. But there just seems to be this competitive attitude in many people in ministry. 
Now, Paul wasn't so critical or so cynical to believe that every other preacher had bad motives. He, he said that some also preach from goodwill. Did you notice that? Some from goodwill, right? He's not saying everybody's like that, but he knew that there were some out there. I don't know if it was two. I don't know if it was four. I don't know if it was 14, but Paul knew of certain men out there who felt that the ministry was a competition and they wanted to surpass Paul. And that's why he says here, the former, in other words, the envious ones, they preach Christ from selfish ambition. You see, those preaching the gospel out of wrong motives are infected with selfish ambition, which makes them serve. But I want you to notice what he says here, but not sincerely, as he says in verse 16. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely. Now let me say something about ambition. Ambition is not necessarily bad. Sometimes I think that people don't have enough ambition for the kingdom of God. Oh, ambition can be a good thing, and there's nothing wrong at all for wanting to be the best you can be for God. But selfish ambition is mostly concerned about having a successful image instead of striving for true success before God. No, selfish ambition is the enemy, not ambition in itself. And these people, as they preach this gospel and as they had this this competition, at least in their minds, against the Apostle Paul, look at what he says there in verse 12. He said, supposing to add affliction to my chains. Those who preached Christ from the wrong motive supposed to add affliction to Paul's chains. Their competitive hearts didn't only want to win for themselves, they also wanted to see Paul lose. They thought it was a competition, and they wanted to win. They wanted Paul to lose. You know, Paul's in prison now. (laughs) Guess he's not starting any more new churches. You know, we just planted three new churches. You know, Paul's in prison now. He's not preaching much. You know, last month we brought 14 people to Jesus Christ. I heard Paul might have brought a couple slave girls to Christ in his imprisonment, but (laughs) that's nothing. That was their attitude. They wanted Paul to endure the humiliation of having to admit that others were more effective than him in ministry. As if that would be a big thing for Paul. So you know what he says? He says right here, I don't care. They didn't understand that Paul honestly didn't care about the competition because he did not have a competitive spirit in ministry. Look at his attitude in verse 18. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this, I rejoice and will rejoice. These guys are almost strutting up to Paul. You know, Paul, we just founded three new churches this last six months. You know, you haven't done much when you've been in prison for the last two years, waiting for your trial before Caesar. And they're hoping to really stick it to Paul. And you know what Paul said with all the sincerity and joy in his heart? Hooray! Three new churches planted. Oh, that's fantastic. Praise God. And they thought they were really sticking it to Paul. But Paul didn't care. He didn't even play that game. He said, I rejoice. I rejoice. Notice how emphatic he is about it in verse 18. And in this, I rejoice. Yes, and will rejoice. They couldn't believe it, but Paul rejoiced. You know, A.W. Tozer wrote one of the most powerful little pieces about rebuking the attitude of competition that's common among those in ministry. And maybe you've heard it before, but if you've heard it before, it's time for you to hear it again. Listen to this. He says, Dear Lord, 
I refuse henceforth to compete with any of thy servants. They have congregations larger than mine, so be it. I rejoice in their success. They have greater gifts, very well. That is not in their power or in mine. I am humbly grateful for their greater gifts and my smaller ones. I only pray that I may use to thy glory the modest gifts that I possess. I will not compare myself with anyone, nor try to build up my self-esteem by noticing where I may be better than someone else in your holy work. I herefore make a blanket disavowal of all my intrinsic worth. I am but an unprofitable servant. I gladly go to the foot of the cross and own myself the least of your people. If I err in my judgment and actually underestimate myself, I don't want to know it. I purpose to pray for others and to rejoice in their prosperity as if it were my own. And indeed, it is my own. If it is your own, for what is yours is mine. And while one plants and another waters, it is thou alone that gives the increase. Man, that's it. You know what really defeats that competitive spirit in the ministry? What really defeats is is just seeing that we're all on the same team. And, you know, you're on the same team and you're playing basketball and you score 10 points and it's the most you've ever scored in a game and you're so excited and, and, and uh, another guy in the team scores 40 points. And if your attitude is, man, I hate that game. You know, he scored 40 and I only scored 10. Listen, what's the only thing that matters is that your team won. And look, here it is. Because you're on the same team, his success is your success. You should just be stoked. So, so that other church in town, that the other denomination, the one that sometimes you think is kind of weird, so they just seem to be blessed and growing and effective. Why gnash your teeth at it? Why not just say, oh, thank you, Lord, that we're all on the same team and that people are being one to Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul says, Only, verse 18, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Paul says, so you mean to tell me that because I'm in prison, people preach the gospel more energetically, motivated by my imprisonment? Paul says, all right. I don't care. He says, all I care about is that more people are coming to Jesus, and that's good enough for me. You know, I like Paul's attitude. He says, if you preach the true gospel, I don't care what your motives are. If your motives are bad, God will deal with you, but at least the gospel is being preached. But let's remember what Paul wrote in some of his other letters, like Galatians, where he attacked a false gospel. Paul said, if you preach a false gospel, I don't care how good your motives are. You're dangerous, and you've got to stop preaching your false gossip, gospel. Your good motives don't excuse your false message. Well, listen. Paul's imprisonment could not hinder the gospel, but neither could the wrong motives of some people. God's work was still getting done, and that's why Paul's rejoicing there at verse 18. So look at his great confidence here, starting at verse 19. He says how confident he is in the present circumstances. He says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed. 
But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. I love Paul's certainty there. Verse 19, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul knew that the Lord was in control of all events, even though his imprisonment and impending trial before Caesar Nero made this whole situation look pretty dark. And notice what he connects his deliverance with. His deliverance is connected with their prayer. This will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer. He was confident because he knew that the Philippians were praying for him. His deliverance was connected to the prayer of the Philippians. So let me throw out a hypothetical before you. What if the Philippians stopped praying? Couldn't you say that Paul says, whoa, I don't know now. You stop praying. I, who knows how this might go? I was confident before, but now you stop praying, and now I wonder. It's amazing how much God puts upon prayer. God forbid that we ever adopt that sort of fatalistic attitude. You know, listen, you know, uh, what God's going to do, he's going to do. He's just planned it all out ahead of time, and there's nothing for us to do. And so, you know, yeah, I'll pray for fellowship with God, but it's not like prayer actually ever changes anything, because God's got his plan, right? I'll tell you what, you read this right here, and as far as Paul was concerned, if the Philippians prayed, he would be delivered. If they didn't, he's not so sure. He connected his deliverance with their prayer. Matter of fact, not only the prayer, though, I love how he words this here in verse 19. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. You might say Paul recognized that it wasn't the prayer in itself that did it. It was the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. But what sent the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ? It was prompted by the prayers of the Philippians. And therefore, he says, my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I will be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always so now, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, notice this. Paul, in verse 19, is talking about deliverance, right? For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. And as the Philippians hear that, they go, oh yeah, deliverance. Paul knows he's going to be released from prison. And then at the end of verse 20, he says, whether by my life or my death. And they realize, whoa, he means deliverance in two ways, right? He could be delivered from prison and walk out a free man. Or he could be delivered from the bonds of this earth and walk as a free man into heaven. Paul says, I don't care. Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. That's all I really care about. I know that Jesus Christ is going to be magnified. Now, this leads Paul in now into verse 21, into one of the most dramatic statements that he makes, even though it hit hard upon the Philippians. I mean, they saw God work so many remarkable miracles of deliverance in Paul's life among them, yet, yet Paul's admitting to them, you know what? God may not deliver me from this. Can't, can't we say that there's really two ways that God delivers? Sometimes God delivers us from our problems, and sometimes he delivers us through our problems. Well, in Philippi, he was delivered from jail. Here, Paul's saying, I don't know if it's going to be from or through, but I'll be delivered. I know that. 
Then he goes on in this passage that I, I, I hope you've read it before. I hope these words sound familiar to you because they're some of the most glorious in the New Testament. He says here, starting in verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you for all your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. We just kind of take a pause and a second look at that triumphant statement in verse 21, right? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, Paul knew that death was not a defeat to the Christian. It was merely a graduation to glory. It's a net gain for the Christian. And Paul's death at the time would be a gain in two senses. First of all, his death for the cause of Christ would glorify Jesus, and that's gain. Second, Paul would be in the immediate presence of the Lord, and that would be gain for Paul. Paul says, for me to die is gain. Now let me ask you, what can the world do to such a man? To such a man who says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. What is the world going to do to him? So the terrorist comes and holds a knife to his throat and says, unless you convert to Islam, we're going to kill you. And a man like Paul says, hey, to live is Christ, to die is gain. You can't do anything to me. It's a win-win situation. The world can do nothing to such a man. Oh, no, no, no. We're going to make your life a living hell then. Paul says, no, 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 I got that covered. You see, to live is Christ. And wherever Christ is, it's not a living hell. I'm with him. So if I live, I'm with Christ. If I die, I gain. You can do nothing to me. By the way here, the idea that Paul would consider death a present gain argues against two doctrines. It argues against the doctrine of soul sleep. Some people believe that when you die, you sort of go into a state of suspended animation and hang out there for 20, 40,000, whatever years, until you're resurrected, and then you go to heaven. No, no, no. Paul would have said, to live is Christ, to die is to sleep with my soul until Jesus brings me home. No, no, no. It also argues against another doctrine, and that's the doctrine of purgatory. Paul would have said, to live is Christ, to die is to go to purgatory for however many years until my soul goes from purgatory to heaven. No, no, no. Paul says to live is Christ, to die is gain, and it shows that Paul did not fear death. I'll make a categorical categorical statement here. No Christian should fear death. Now listen, it's one thing to fear dying, right? I think of some poor believer, their body's racked with cancer, they're in terrible pain, they they, they wonder if they're going to live a matter of days or a matter of weeks or a matter of months and how long the whole process will last out and the whole process of dying is upon them. And you know what? They fear the process of dying. Fearing dying is not the same as fearing death. And no believer should fear death, just like the Apostle Paul. Because we can say with Paul, to live is Christ, to die is gain. No, the, the, the live part was clear. He says, if I live on in the flesh, that will mean fruit for my labor. Paul said, listen, if I live, it's going to be fruitful. 
don't you wish every believer had that attitude? That's it. If I live, fruit is going to come forward. They, they know it. And then he goes on and says in this remarkable statement, verse 23, for I'm hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Having a desire to depart and be with Christ. By the way, it's a very strong longing that Paul uses there, or describes there. It, the, the, the Greek word has a lot of force in it. It's, it's almost as if he's panting, he, he's sighing, he's longing to depart. He desires to depart. I'm going to say something bold here. I hope I'm not going out too far. Uh, could you not say here from verse 23 that Paul says that he wanted to die? I desire to depart. And it's a very strong word he uses there for desire. He says, I want to die. Now listen, other men have also wanted to die. Some men wish to die because they're gripped by the gloom and the darkness that leads to suicide. Some men wish to die because they're so tired of this world and the cruelty of others that they think that, that, that death is better. Some men want to die because they're in the crisis of some kind of suffering and they think that death is better than their present suffering. I want you to know that Paul's desire to die, we can call it, had nothing in common with any of those. Paul's desire to depart had many motivations. And I'll just give you three. First of all, Paul said, you know, when I depart, when I go to heaven, I'm going to be done with sin and temptation. Doesn't that sound great? I mean, honestly, there's going to come a day when we're in heaven when we don't sin anymore, when we're not tempted anymore. And Paul says, oh, I want that. And then he says, going to heaven will mean that I'm going to see those brothers and sisters who have gone to heaven before me. You know, the longer I live and the more people that I know and that I've been close to have died, uh, the more I think this is precious. I, I, I think of, of some dear saints that I've known in my day. I think of a man named Gene Finn, an old man who was part of my congregation back in California and one of our elders and just an amazing, amazing godly man. And you know, when I think that Gene Finn is in heaven... I say, oh, I, heaven is more dear to me now because he's there. And I want to see Gene Finn again. I think of another man named Tony Moore. Tony wasn't particularly old, uh, and he died very suddenly. And you know what, Tony? Man, I can't wait to go to heaven and see Tony. And I think of friends and relatives, and I think of dear people who have gone before, and I say, heaven is dear because of that. And then thirdly, most importantly, you saw what he said right there in verse 23, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ. Isn't that it most of all? I mean, heaven's going to be great because no more sin and no more temptation. Heaven's going to be great because we're going to get to see those people that, that have gone on before us. But most of all, the surpassing glory of heaven will be Christ himself, closer and better than ever before. And so he says, I've got a desire to depart. You know, it's great. This whole metaphor that he uses, the language that he uses here, seems to be the language of a ship. Where he says, you know, here I am, I'm in harbor, I'm in a foreign port. The ship is in a foreign port, and I want to strike the sail and go home. 
And I want to depart. I'm just waiting. I, I don't belong in this port. You know, I'm here. I, I know all that. And I'm, the ship is being useful here. But when am I going to get to strike the sail and go on the voyage and go home to my home port? Matter of fact, Paul knew this too, that it wouldn't be a long journey, right? You don't have to sail a long way to get home. No, he would strike the sail and then it would be like that miraculous boat ride that the disciples had on the Sea of Galilee. As soon as Jesus stepped in the boat, bam, they were at their destination. And that's how it would be for Paul. So Paul says, yes, I desire this. But then look at what he says in verse 24. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. You see, Paul understood that other people still needed him that his work was not yet done. And so he allowed for the possibility of his martyrdom. He told the Philippian Christians that he expected to be spared at this time. He said, I know that I shall remain and continue with you. That your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Paul said, you know, I know when we see each other again, it's going to be great. And you want to know how it turned out? Did Paul die? Did he ever get back to see the Philippians? Yes, he did. Paul's friendship with the Philippians was close and he survived this imprisonment. He was set free. He was martyred again at Rome years later, but he did visit the Philippians again. Now, Paul's in prison. The Philippians are in Philippi, not surprisingly. So how should they act when Paul's away? Now notice this, that's the last few verses that we're going to take a look at here tonight. Verse 27. He says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now look, isn't this great? (laughs) Paul, I hope I'm not saying this the wrong way, but Paul was a master of psychology. I mean, his amazing, stirring words, live or die, it's all for Christ. I don't care, kill me or if I live, but I'll stay for your good. I love you, Philippians. I know it'll be for your good. And then he takes a breath and he says, now, I want you to act a certain way while I'm gone. And like the Philippians, when this is being read to them, they're fighting back the tears. They're saying, oh, Paul, you you would live or die for us and you love us so much. And now they're just so ready to hear the instructions that he has for them. Now, I want you to notice this. What is his point in verse 27? If there was any problem in the Philippian church, what was the problem? They didn't have an exact unity. Maybe there were some quarreling, some squabbling, some fighting. And I want you to remember this very carefully, especially as we transition into chapter 2 the next time we're together, because that forms the whole foundation of that stirring passage in chapter 2. Paul's saying, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. You see, Paul says, I want to hear that you're unified. I don't want to hear that there's divisions and squabbling and fighting and dissensions among you. No, no, no. I don't want to hear that at all. Now, going on, just keep that in mind because he's going to touch on that mightily into chapter 2. But now he's going on here, uh, verse 28. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. Now, he says, listen, 
Don't be terrified by your adversaries because when you show courage in the face of your adversaries, it's to them a proof of perdition. Do you know what perdition is? It's destruction. When we show courage in the face of our enemies, it testifies to them that their judgment and their destruction is certain. They say, well, God is with this man. And if God is with him, He's not with me because I'm opposing him. It's proof of their perdition. But notice what he says, but to you of salvation, your courage, your tenacity, your joy in the midst of trials. Now, I know this would be true in the midst of sufferings that we would go through today. Again, if you just want to paint a scenario, you know, paint the picture. Here's a person being, um, uh, you know, uh, threatened or tortured by terrorists or something like that. And they just show joy. They show no terror. They just show trust in Christ through it all. And listen, that would be powerful evidence to those people who are, who are persecuting and torturing that person that their destruction is certain, and it would be testimony to them of their salvation. But, but I don't mean it just purely in a physical way. I, I think we can consider this too with our spiritual enemies. Think of the demons that are just waiting for you to get afraid, right? Uh, afraid of the uncertainties in your life. Uh, afraid of the temptations that have been or that will come. Afraid of this or afraid of that. And you just show courage and tenacity in the face of Jesus Christ. You know what those demons say? They say, man, we're going to hell. We're, we're destined for destruction. And this guy's testifying to us of it. That's the idea here. That their courage is a warning, is a witness against those who oppose them. And now they have no reason to be terrified by their adversaries here. Uh, verses 29 and 30. He says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. All right, let's, let's think about just these last few verses here. Paul has really pulled on the heartstrings of the Philippians, right? Telling about his own courage, his own willingness to face death, his own desire to see them. He has very effectively, not in a manipulative way, but in a very honest way, he's pulled on their heartstrings, and then he says, now I want you to hang together in unity. And what was it that seemed to be stressing out their unity? It seems that that was attacks from enemies. Probably they were being persecuted. Can you see the picture maybe going on in the Philippian church? Persecution starts coming up. It makes people afraid. It makes people angry and maybe a little bit short of temper with one another. It makes them willing to divide one against another. It makes them suspicious of one another. They want to know why you were persecuted, but you were not. Was there compromise there? Was there not compromise on the other side? What's going on? And there's division coming up, probably in the context of persecution. So Paul's saying, listen, don't worry about the persecution because, and he had to say, verse 29 and 30 are powerful. It has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. You know, when you think of what God grants to you, right? God has a grant for you. Oh, really? Wonderful. What is it? Well, it is for you to believe in his name. Oh, great. I take that grant from God to believe in his name. God has another grant for you. Well, I want to receive it too. His grant is for you to suffer for his sake. Um... 
Thanks, God, I think. Is this your gift to me? You see, they needed to understand that in the same way belief was granted to them, so also was the privilege to suffer for his sake. You see, that ancient Greek word there that's translated for suffer is the ancient Greek word pasco. It's most commonly used in the context of persecution, but not always. It's also used of physical sufferings that are not related to persecution. It's used of suffering under temptation, and it's used of hardships in a general sense. I don't know what your sufferings, what your pasco, to use that ancient Greek word, I don't know what they are. But listen, if God grants you suffering, do not despise it. I like what F.B. Meyer said. He wrote on this point, Everyone cannot be trusted with suffering. All cannot stand the fiery ordeal. They would speak rashingly and complainingly, so the master has to select with careful scrutiny the branches that can stand the pruning knife. And so, F.B. Meyer continues, Look up and take each throb of pain, each hour of agony as a gift. Dare to thank him for it. Look inside the envelope of pain for the message that it unfolds. It's a rough packing case, but there's treasure in it. God grants us to suffer for his sake. And Paul knew that their suffering was in some ways like the suffering that he had also experienced. Verse 30, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here in me. Now listen, if the Philippians had Paul's same kind of conflict, what does that tell you? They could also have Paul's same kind of joy that he has right now. And so can us. So can we. We recognize that um, God is master over our life. That there's no trial that comes to us except through the hands of God. And it doesn't mean that God necessarily wants you to remain in the trial. Maybe it's his will to deliver you out of it. But the presence of the trial shouldn't discourage you to thinking that God has abandoned you one bit, not any more than God had abandoned Paul in that Philippian jail. Well, we bring to an end our study here for this first chapter of Philippians, but next time when we get together and go through this amazing second chapter of Philippians, this incredible chapter that soars up to great heights, I want you to remember two things from chapter 1. Chapter 2 soars up to heaven in this amazing description of Jesus, but at the same time, It's connected to Paul's prison cell, right? And it's also connected to the very practical need of the Philippians to get along with one another and be unified. Remembering that, we'll be in the right frame of mind to approach Philippians chapter 2. Let's pray together. Father, we pray together tonight, and um, we think of the great courage that Paul showed in the midst of his sufferings, and even in the midst of impending death. And Lord, uh, we want to have that same courage. We want to have the same confidence that we could genuinely say, to live is Christ and to die is gain, and to say it with all the sincerity of our soul. Lord, just fill us with that kind of spirit. We expect it from you. We long for it from you. And we pray that you'd give it to us, Lord. We don't believe that you would have described it to us, You would have held it before us here in the example of Paul and the Philippians if you did not mean, Lord, to fill us with it when we humbly wait before you. And so we receive it now, Lord. 
Thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.